Modifying your environment is key because then you don't need willpower and you don't need discipline. I've chosen the things that I want and then I modify my environment to make getting those things occur more naturally without that whole process of willpower, shaming myself from one choice over the other choice. Like I don't do that. You have to get inertia going in your direction. You have to do that initial work. Once you do it, the momentum can take over. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, our guest is Katie Bowman, a best-selling author and speaker who's revolutionizing the way that we think about movement and our need for it in today's modern culture. Katie's work with her company, Nutritious Movement, has been featured on The Today Show, CBC Radio One, The Seattle Times, and Good Housekeeping. In this episode, we explore Katie's unique perspective on movement and discuss her upcoming book, Rethink Your Position. We touch on topics such as tech neck, junk food movement, sedentary culture, furniture-free homes, minimalist footwear, the art of long-distance walking, the benefits of hanging, dynamic workstations, sleep shapes and how to change them, trampolines, jumping, creating movement-positive zones for children, and a lot more. Join us as we dive deep into the world of movement with the incredible Katie Bowman. Katie, you write that our current movement diet is restricted in both quantity and variety. I would love for you to talk to me about this and tell me why it matters. Well, your movement quantity would be akin to dietary calories. So, you know, I'm sure people would recognize that they don't probably move as much as they would like. So our movement calories are quite low. Some people might even perceive a a movement drought. There's definitely a global movement drought. Humanity, even modern, like modern humans are just slowly decreasing their daily movement. And it's not just a, an American issue or a Western culture issue. It is something that's happening on a global scale as humanity makes certain decisions about where society is going. And then within, again, the dietary nutrient understanding, we know that we don't only eat for calories. We also eat for micro and macronutrients. So you can't really subsist on a single food. You can't even subsist on a couple of foods that are quite nutritious on their own because there's no real single foods that contain the macronutrients and the micronutrients that we require. So we have this understanding of I need to diversify my diet a little bit to make sure eat the rainbow. Like there's so many ways that we've come up with bumper sticker slogans to help people remember how to make choices simply when it comes to diet. So they get the dietary nutrients and mechanical nutrients are the things that we get when we move. Once your calories are up high enough, say you make a point to move daily or multiple times throughout the day. For many of us, we tend to pick one mode of exercise that we like, and that would be akin to eating a single food or really narrow spectrum of foods. And the way you can think about your movement needs is all the parts of your body need movement. And so even when people are fairly active, there tend to be sedentary areas within their active body. And so it matters because bodies need movement. And you also have this concept of junk food movement. What would be something that could fit into that category of junk food movement? Usually when we say junk food, what we're looking at are is a food that meets some dietary need. It's usually calories, but it's not particularly nutrient dense, high on the calories, poor on the nutrients, poor on the spectrum of nutrients. Like there's not a lot of diversity found. And then also with junk food movement, there would be the intake of other things that like fillers and so forth that don't really 
have a nutritional purpose, a biological purpose. They're more simply a contained within the food. So when we think of junk food is to think of all the things that it does do, because when we talk about junk food movement, we tend to get more protective of our movements. So for example, running on a treadmill would be something that is different than running on the ground. There's some a lot of similarities there, but there are some differences that maybe only a biomechanist like myself would even particularly see. For example, there's a way that humans stride and move their bodies over ground, but when you go on a particular piece of machinery where the belt moves backwards, you no longer have to push backwards when you move forward. You have to sort of uh, change your gait to match this tool that you're using which is fine. So it's not junky in the sense of you have to throw it away, but it is it is a way of going, oh, there's something else happening to my body when I'm moving in this particular way. So junk food movements usually tend to have some unintended consequences associated with them. And then also like junk food sometimes has more to do with in the context of your entire diet. And so for people who move in a limited fashion, if their mode of favorite mode of movement is heavily processed, so to speak, then then they would not be getting necessarily the same movement nutrients from that less, I don't know, I'm trying to avoid using the words like wholesome and natural because those are tricky, but, but you're, it is somewhat similar in there. It's just more processed. There's more machinery involved. There's more beyond the movement that's involved in the movement. And so that's how I associate things into that category without judgment, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to build nutritious movement diets and nutritious dietary diets. And sometimes more processed things have to fit into those slots because we're not sure how to get the foods otherwise or the nutrients otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for that. That's, that's cool. I I like that elaboration. You know, I wanted to ask you just what do you think are some of the mistakes that we commonly make when it comes to movement within our culture? Can you talk to me about sedentary culture in, in this modern day? Well, I, I, if I could boil everything down to a single mistake, if I was, I don't think I would use that word, but but I understand what you're saying. It would be, we we mistake the concept of convenience for saves time when convenience is really saving us movement. Those are jumbled up in our minds. And the reason that confusion is really, especially in a technologically savvy group of animals like we are, um, who figured out these more and more ways to save time through conveniences and technologies, what we're really doing is saving the movements associated to get the things that we need. And the reason we're not actually saving time at all, this is the mistake part, is because you need those mechanical nutrients. So all you've done at the end of a day where you've tapped and swiped and brought everything up to your height so you don't have to move, all you've done is gotten rid of any of the places that movement would have happened naturally. So at the end of the day, here you sit with the same volume of movement that you needed, only you didn't get any of it. And now you need to find four extra hours in your day to get the movement that your body requires. So that's the mistake. It's hard to see because I talk about this paradox a lot in my work. Human bodies require a tremendous amount of movement in our, in our DNA. Right, like that's just part of how we come. So the bulk of our systems work on a spine or axis of movement, digestion, 
you know, all, like all these systems that we don't necessarily put into movement, they require movement in order to work. So we've got this tremendous need. And also in our DNA is the habit to avoid movement at any cost, to, to avoid any unnecessary movement at any cost. It's that natural tendency for all things to conserve energy. So when you pair those things in the environment that we've created, there's nothing really wrong with our bodies. They're operating just fine. The environments that we are creating are not serving us any longer. And that's that's where the problem is, is because the more you put around you to make things convenient, and even a chair is convenient, or to make things comfortable. Comfortable is another thing to save the feeling or the pressure of exertion or, I mean, it's just pressure. It's the least judgmental way to say it. Just the thing of pushing on your body. I'm looking at a chair right now, the idea of not having to travel all the way to the ground to sit on the floor, but to stop midway. And then so you 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 rise and fall from a decreased platform. And we use this 100 times a day, And, you know, there are definitely people who require chairs because there's a variety of abilities, but there are many people who don't have a disability that would prevent them from not using the chair. It's just more of a cultural thing that we all use these chairs. So when you surround yourself in an environment that has gotten rid of movement and in your entire society has become a sedentary culture, now you have to fake movement. You have to make movement. We're searching for movement in the same way, in the same way that we reach for dietary supplements. I read or listened to a podcast recently where you were speaking about having a largely furniture-free home. Would love to hear you talk about that. Well, just for the reasons I just mentioned, you know, in the same way, if you're wanting to eat well, you wouldn't stock your home full of foods that you didn't want to actually consume. When you want to move more, move your body well, you have to watch, like we, we're biological in the fact we respond to our environment all the time. So if there's no, I made my house a place where more movement would occur naturally, just moving through it. So it's not so much that it's furniture free, although I know it's referred to that a lot in the media. It's more that it's, it's flexible seating, a variety of places to use a variety of body shapes versus thinking of furniture as the places where you do the thing that we call sitting, which is a, you know, sort of a repetitive, you know what a repetitive use injury is. It's We have sort of the, these sitting repetitive use injuries, and you can put a lot of things into that category that are not necessarily musculoskeletal, but metabolic in nature because of the way that we articulate ourselves around our home. So yeah, I definitely um, have very low, I have few seats and most of them are very low. So, so they would use a different body geometry that most people would be used to using. I, I have uh, higher seats for people that need it, but I always have people like calculate your chair to butt ratio of your area. And you're going to find that their houses are filled with seats. They are places for you to sit. And our children are raised understanding that sitting inside is, you know, the primary thing that humans do without even realizing it. This is just what we bequeath to the next generation, just as we were handed it down and it's been handing down for a long time. But of course, things are more accelerated now. You know, we've never been this sedentary and it's increasing exponentially, as I said. So, so yeah, so I, I, I make my house look like I would make my pantry if I wanted to eat well. One of the movement nutrients that we don't get a lot is using our arms very much. And so I'll always have something to hang from in the house. And when my children were younger, it was a little bit more elaborate. 
And now being outside is a big part of our personal and family mission statements. And so just making sure that there are spaces where movement, even more wild, loud movement is permitted in the home and is safe to do in the home. And then also, of course, just around my own work desk. You know, I have a bar in the doorway where I can reach up and hang from it. And that feels good to my body. It helps me get more movement, even though I do, you know, regular everyday things like work on a computer and do podcasts and and write. Why is hanging so beneficial for the body? Same reason that walking is so beneficial for the body, right? Like these are major limbs with lots of connective pieces and our shoulders are complex and we don't do very much with our arms. I mean, like relatively speaking, our arms are way, they're used much less than our legs. You know, we've slowly made a transition, not not everybody, but many people have moved a transition away from labor, you know, doing work with our arms. Most of the labor that we benefit from is outsourced to other people. And so we don't produce the things that we use. We no, we no longer do the tasks that our grandparents or our great-grandparents did that use their arms. We buy things that are made by other people or other machines in other places. And so arms are such a, you know, they, they need just as much movement as our legs do. So hanging is, it's a large weight movement, which means it hits a lot of joints at once. It's a good way to maintain your strength to weight ratio. And then the muscles that attach to your arm actually attach to your pelvis, get down to your rib cage, affect things like breathing and spinal stability. So so don't throw them away. You definitely want to work up to keeping your arms and shoulders mobile, right? Keeping them very mobile and then keeping them strong as well. And your hands, grip strength. Grip strength is one of those all predictor, all-time predictor of mortality, as we transition to a culture that doesn't do very much with their arms, except type and swipe, there are these larger systemic things. And that's, it's not to say that you have to use your hands in order to benefit. It's just that if you're using, if your hands are strong, it's probably because you're using your arms a lot. And so being able to hang is a real simple way to modify your home to get that more often. You also mentioned your workstation. I'd love to hear about like an ideal workstation for folks, uh, you know, especially those of us who are kind of trapped behind the computer, which is a, a lot of people. Yeah, dynamic, just like a house, flexible and dynamic, which means you want your you want the space in which you're doing your work to facilitate ideally many positions. But if you can get three, that's great. And so like if you're sitting in a chair, the idea of like you can get multiple positions while you're sitting in a chair, it's the idea of I'll cross my right leg over my left for a little bit and then my left leg over for my my right. And then maybe I'll sit cross-legged for a little bit. So you're just typing on your computer, but beneath you, your lower body is cycling through a variety of positions that would normally fall under people's definition of what you do in an exercise class, right? Because we've really parsed out when we're moving and when we're not moving. So the less you can do that, the more likely you are to get more movement in your daily life, something that allows you to stand Something I always, if you can get close to a window, the eyes are another body part that's really been compromised. I mean, we're definitely seeing, again, global changes in young people's eyeballs where um, my, like myopia, which is nearsightedness, is on the rise. And eyes really, in order to take, your eyes have muscles too. So I always use the analogy. If you do a bicep curl, like if you grab some, like a weight with your hand and flex your elbow and you lower it back down, that's taking your elbow through its full range of motion. Eyes, when they look up close, when they look at a computer screen, when they look at a phone, even when they look at a wall inside, because that's not very far, it's like doing just the up 
curl of a bicep curl, the muscle gets short and they never go the other way. You, the only thing that stretches your eye muscles out is to focus on something really far away. So you have to have the ability to look at something an eighth of a mile, a quarter of a mile or farther away. And that's what releases the eyes. And even when you close your eyes at night, they go back into their tight, constricted position. They're not relaxing at night. So in these environments where we're spending almost all of our time inside, almost all of our time looking at books and looking at computers and looking at phones, the eye muscle is not being exercised fully. So pairing your workspace with a window where you can just take an eye break, an eye movement break every 15 or 20 minutes, or if you're really excited about your task, you know, look every 30 minutes. But the idea is to recognize that eyes have muscles and those muscles are not getting the movement that they need. In your new book, Rethink Your Position, you write about tech neck. Can you talk to me about tech neck and how to avoid it or ameliorate it? Well, tech neck is just a rebrand, right? We used to call that forward head position. Like that would be a position that we would associate with older bodies that had lost spinal support, right? It's called, it was called a dowager's hump where the upper upper back rounds forward and then the chin juts forward. So you get an excessive thoracic curve and an excessive lordotic curve. Both curves are doing something that's not great for the neck and it has issues like swallowing and upper back pain and bone density issues. Well, now we are seeing that movement being practiced during youth. So rather than having a really active life and then sort of seeing slouch come over time, we're spending our youth in that slouched over position. This is the first generation that will have spent all this time in this forward slouch position before they get to the part of their life where things maybe are a little bit weaker. And and again, like I said, it's it's very challenging. It affects breathing. It affects bone density. It affects swallowing. So the adjustment that I offer is, well, first is just the point, which is your technology does not require that position from you right? Like doesn't operate because you're in that position. It is simply mindless. We're very mindless around how we position our body. Most of the time we do, we do cultivate mindfulness. A lot of times in a movement practice, we set up, you know, like I'm in X, I am doing my mindful movement right now. And then now I'm just doing errands. And what rethink your position is all about is recognizing that we need to be mindful with our bodies all of the time, or at least we have that potential and, here are all the ways you can hold your body. And one of those ways is when you're using your technology of what would be a better alignment for me for my technology use. And then I outline in that book, right? You're going to hold your head in this ramped tall position, which takes those curves out. You're going to watch where your rib cage is while you're doing it. And your tech works either way, but this one's a lot better for your spine. In your book, Rethink Your Position, you also write about changing our sleep shapes. What does this look like? And what does this entail? Well, your sleep shape is just like anything else that you do. Like, how do you sleep? What's the position you sleep in? Because this is a position that you're adapting to like anything else. So we're pretty sedentary and our sleep surfaces are an extension of that in many cases, right? They, we sleep on highly cushioned surfaces, not everybody, but it's pretty conventional to sleep. If you looked at your bedding, you'd be like, oh, I sleep on one and a half to two feet tall foam. 
and padding and cushion. Why? Like what does solid solidness under the body do? Well, it forces us to move, right? It applies pressure just like you would get in a bodywork session. It requires that joints open and extend and flex. We have a pillows underneath our head because we do have so much practice sort of jutting our heads forward that to lay down at night to adjust the body is a lot. So we we prop our posture up throughout the night with cushion. When you're having physical issues with your body, it's always nice to look at your mechanical environment. That is all the ways you move your body, not just your exercise behavior, which which if we're if we're at that point that's even great. I don't, I think some people don't even acknowledge that their movement, their exercise behavior relates to their well-being. But your movement diet is much broader than that. And if you're spending six to 10 hours doing something with your body, that might be part of what's not working for your body. So one of the examples I outline in the book is I always had a lot of headaches and I tend to be stiff to the upper body. And it makes sense. I'm stiff to the upper body. I'm going to prop up my stiffness throughout the night so that stiffness doesn't have to be challenged in any way. But what I found was I would go for therapy to stretch and learn how to move my neck and soften. And then at night, I would just throw that pillow back underneath my head and it would push me back. And I was like, you know what? I, I after doing this work on mobilizing, I'm going to get rid of this pillow. And I, and I did it over time. It was really like, I'm going to get rid of this tall pillow to a slightly smaller pillow to a slightly smaller pillow. I mean, it took me a Somewhere between 12 and 18 months, you know, at the very end, I was just sleeping on a folded up t-shirt. And even sometimes now, now I just sleep on the floor with cushion on it. But I mean, I don't sleep on a bed because I like the firmness. The firmness moves my back. It feels better for me. I don't expect everyone to do that same degree. The point is to recognize that you're not doing nothing with your body when you're sleeping. You're practicing some repetitive motion and to recognize that your sleep environment might be a key place to investigate. And then I outline like, and here's some of the reasons why, and here's some of the changes you can play with to see if, if maybe your sleep environment is the culprit or at least part of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. What do you think about jumping? Is jumping an important part of a nutritious movement diet? Uh, what do you like? What do you mean by jump? Jumping on a rebounder or jumping off stuff and learn about how to master landing? Or yeah, that's a really good question. Okay, let's uh, let's go into the rebounder first. What do you think of small trampolines and their role in a nutritious movement diet? This is so funny. The funny thing is, I actually get this question a lot, which makes me think that rebounders must be a thing that a lot of people use and discuss. So because I get this question so often, I created this entire template and I did it when I uh, wrote Grow Wild, which is my book on the movements that children need to answer this question. It's less about is a movement good or bad? The question is, what is a move? What do you need in a movement diet? And, and where does this activity fit in? So when you look at the entire sheet and anyone can download the sheet and fill it in for themselves, a rebounder would go into a little bit of explosive leg motion, right? The idea that you're extending knees and hips. Um, it's a little bit more forgiving than regular jumping because form really matters in movement and the soft surface, it decreases your need for form. So there's nothing wrong with that movement. It could be something, a way to get leg movement. And again, if it's the only movement that you can do, right, then just like a food that you're eating, 
then it's providing you with some nutrients, but it would not make up an entire movement diet. And it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't even make up a primary movement diet because so many of the other things like your bone tissues and other parts would not be getting what they need from it. What do you think about jumping in general? I began this high interval training regimen and I noticed that jumping is a big part of it and I haven't jumped for like years and years. So it's actually pretty challenging for me, but I like it. I like the explosiveness of it. I would just like to hear you, your thoughts around it. Jumping is fun. I mean, jumping's kid-like. It makes you feel youthful. And they have really found actually in even older bodies, jumping's really great for your bones. Jumping not on a rebounder, jumping where you're landing is good, good for your bones. And, and, and I'm not talking necessarily about 20 box jumps or things that you would find in an interval workout. It could be something simple like hopping down off of a short step, right? You just need the, the impact of something. So I do think that jumping, get, getting those high loads in your body are great. Um, when, when you're first starting, like I said, you want to be mindful of the loads. You want to go for lower loads, shorter surfaces, smaller volume. You don't want to do like 20 or 30 of something in a row. It's more like weaving it through your daily life. And then there's a form to jumping. There's a form to jumping. You want to look at what do my ankles and my knees do when I land? So if you notice when you're jumping down off something that your feet are turned out, but your knees bang together or your knees are popping out, you would want to put form onto jumping in the same way you would want to put form onto a particular yoga move. You want to check out what that is for your body in general. And in different jumps have a slightly different jumping form, but in general, landing is what you want to pay attention. There's form, there's a fitness program. MoveNet has lots of jumping techniques that had to deal with your arms and legs. What I tend to focus on more is landing. As long as you're landing okay when you jump off stuff, that's going to suffice for most people who are not trying to, you know, jump six feet, who are just like, oh, I would like to, you know, jump forward, play hopscotch, right? Like you can put jumping into games, play hopscotch. If you have kids or work with kids, their jumping is a great example of all the different ways it could look. You'll have kids who want to jump six feet off something or three feet off things. And I definitely think, you want to keep your body to the point where you can jump off something that's a few feet high and know how to land okay. And then just playing games, jump rope, or like I was saying, hopscotch, or just laying or drawing circles in the chalk and jumping from one to another. Those are great ways where you can get the jumping while also playing with other people, you know, while having some fun and family time with it. It doesn't have to be fitness or done outside of all that other time. Do you have an opinion around high interval training? Not really. I mean... We're trying to figure out the foods that we're going to eat, the foods that appeal to us to meet our dietary needs. High interval training tends to be on the shorter side. <laughs> There's a long line of, of attempts at finding the shortest, briefest thing we can do that nourishes our body with movement. And there are so many varieties. There, oh no, how do I want to say it? There's so many nutrients to be found in movement. Cardiovascular movements, heart and lung movements are one of them but so are ranges of motion. I like high interval as fun food to eat, but it wouldn't necessarily pay off in the volume of movement that we need. The good news is the volume of movement that we need does not need to be found in the fitness or workout space. The volume of movement that we need is more about active positioning with our body when we're at rest. So not, like I said before, not always using chairs, sitting more on the floor or on a few prop items that help bolster us 
in between our abilities where we are right now being raised in chairs, you know, so like sitting up on a pillow or so, or just sitting on a lower chair, walking more in active transportation, things that use our long limbs or full body for an extended period of time. I always say like, if you thought of the food pyramid that not necessarily what what our government food pyramid is, but the concept of what's at the base you need the most of, what's at the top you need the least of. I would put jumping more towards the top and walking more towards the base, right? The base of our movement pyramid is slow, regular repetition that sort of mixes up our geometry a little bit. We're carrying our body weight. It's not like anything explosive or hard, high energy. Carrying is definitely also on that spectrum. Like how much are you using your arms? We tend to put backpacks onto our spine. We're not picking things up with our arms. When we do have kids, we get this like period of time where we're carrying more stuff, but we've even sort of put children in more devices. So we no longer use our arms for that. You know, that's become a a new thing that's being done more and more often. So that's, that would be where I see it. I see it as a way to get, it's a great food where you can maybe hit some of the things that aren't being hit otherwise, but it's not, it would not be a mode. A mode is not a diet make, I guess is the shortest way to say it. A mode is a type of exercise that you do. You almost do the opposite. You're a long distance walker and you can do you can do between like 20 and 40 miles in a day. I kind of want to hear more about this. Yeah. Tell me about what you get out of it, what you love about it and kind of the, the pace that you might be walking at. Well, right. So the easiest question is the pace. It takes me like six hours to do 20 miles around there. And that's with like a little bit of a break. You know, I can push upward of 35 to 40, but it's more common for me to do regularly like 20 miles once a month. And I'm very much in influenced by what humans have been doing with their bodies that got us to this place. We are long distance walkers, right? That is in our ancestry. It is, it'd be the equivalent of an heirloom food. (laughs) that has come through. And so as our environments become less hospitable for this practice of walking, part of the reason I walk is to preserve the skill. There is a group of people who do this type of walking all over the world. Walking is just, it's a big part of ceremony. It's a big part of pilgrimages. Rites of passage are on this spectrum of walking. So it's for all those reasons that I do it. Uh, It gives me, I, I guess the simplest way to say it is, Walking, and especially walking 20 miles, gives me a period free from transitions. And if we were trying to if we were trying to figure out what modern life is, it is rapid transitioning. When we talk about things being fast versus things being slow, we have to now do so many things. Our needs are no longer met in a stacked way. This is a callback to like permaculture the idea of stacked functions being done. Everything is done in series. When you've taken everything out of its natural context and are trying to still do all the things that humans have always done, worked, raised children, had partnerships, fostered community, built shelters, but you're doing them in a way where you're not outside, you don't, you don't have any land-based knowledge, you know, you're not doing it in relationship with any other species, you know, it's all human-centric. There's very little consideration given to what also dwells in your space or was cleared out of your space so that you could dwell it's really, you're just transitioning between so many things. It, it's the, it's the most clearly when I, where I am able to be who I am, I find it on that walk. 
I go on these very short pilgrimages because there's nothing else happening. So it's sort of like following a breath, only it's following a stride. And then I'm able to tap in a little bit. What kind of shoes are you wearing when you go off on these long walks? A lot of us have sedentary parts in our otherwise active bodies. The feet are often going to be one of those sedentary parts. So 25% of the number, number of muscles and bones in your body are from the ankle down. Yet these parts do not get very much movement. They're sort of given a lot of extra support. Like just in the way we get a, someone, an, an adult gave us a pillow to start using when we were a kid. Adults will give you cushioned footwear because it's just part of oftentimes what the culture assigns. And so our, we never really use our foot muscles in the same way we can use our hands, right? We lose that dexterity. We lose that strength. We, use, we lose that skill. And so I only wear minimal footwear. Minimal footwear, for those that don't know, is just it's footwear that does what we often need footwear to do, which is to protect us from the environment, from the detritus of humanity, and then also just the detritus of nature, you know, that makes things a little bit more comfortable. Humans have been wearing shoes for a very long time, but those shoes were simpler, more flexible. They were more rudimentary. They provided protection without really interfering with gait. So when I walk for a long time, I'll just wear sand, you know, my, I wear earth runners. I, I have a whole list of minimal shoes that I like. And I live in the Pacific Northwest. And so I might need something that protects me from wet a little bit, but it's always going to be thin. It's always going to be flexible and it's always going to be wide. So that doesn't push my toes together. And are you pro the barefoot shoes? I mean, I think people really need to figure out what they need from their shoes and shoes are very like even even brands that I love don't work for everyone's feet. So you definitely you, you need to find the footwear that works for you and your particular feet and the activities that you want to do. For example, I have, my husband is extremely high arched and the only shoes that he can really wear without creating ankle problems are the barefoot slide on ones that I think you're talking about. That being said, we also live a lot of time in a very wet environment and those shoes often don't work in a wet environment. So it's never only about the shoe brand. It's about the ecology of it all to figure out what's going to work for you. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier that you'd written a book called Girl Wild, the movement that children need. I, I kind of want to hear more about that. I have a three and a half year old child myself. And I'm wondering what could be the biggest gifts that I could give her in terms of establishing movement principles that could guide her as she gets older. That's my thickest book, right? Because children are so malleable physically. It's our, our, our adult bodies are set during our juvenile period. That's why it's so important is because that's setting what's available to you later on. I would say that a very easy thing to do is permission to move, which I think I, I had mentioned earlier. We don't even realize the biases that we have around movement and where movement should happen. We tend to be more forgiving with younger, younger children tend to. And then when they get into that 11 and 12 years old, and then the movement really starts ramping up. And it depends on the child too, where it gets a lot more explosive, you know, uh, in, in Move Your DNA, which is my first book, I talk about orca whales. And in that juvenile period, kind of their their puberty, if you will, it ties that period of that period of 
life ties into some of their most seemingly erratic behavior. But their erratic behavior is coming with this growth spurt as they're setting their adult body. So while it looks arbitrary, it's the opposite. It is, I'm going to do all these crazy things with my body and and, and I'm going to set my mind and my body. This is my last hurrah and I'm showing off and I'm doing all these things. And those are there because my anatomy is in a relationship with those things. And that goes with us all the way through that early, you know, even, even younger newborns to where your children are now to eight and then all the way up to teens is permission to move. Look at your house rules. Are children allowed to move in the house? Are they expected to be quiet and sitting down? Do you offer any, like, what are the creative movements that are allowed in your house? Kids are so great. They're like, I'm going to build stuff. I'm going to be jumping off stuff. A lot of people don't allow it. Just my whole point of writing this is like, this is what's happening. These are the natural things. The rules of civilization are what they are. The rules of society are what they are. But you have choices in these matters. And when you make this choice, this is what can happen to the body. So create some spaces. I would definitely get some space for her and all of you to hang. It can be a simple, you know, it's a $20 bar. Watch, you know, watch words like be careful. There's a whole, there's all sorts of tutorials on that kind of stuff on, on the language that you want to use around, around movement. A big one for me is make sure children understand non-exercise movement. So in a culture that outsources almost all of its labor to other people and machines, we're not really passing down the idea of the labor that goes into taking care of your individual needs as a human. We're sort of having an exercise fitness centric conversation that exercise that I do, which is leisure time activity is for my sole physical benefit. And so teaching things like, and you just teach through modeling. This isn't a lesson. Even if you don't require making something because you can source it differently, learning how to make some things. And it can be in the garden. It can be making preserves. It can be making old family recipes. So it can be fun. It doesn't, labor, labor doesn't have to mean hard and negative. You know, labor, labor can be celebratory. It has always been celebratory. And it's not to minimize the issues associated with unrested labor or, or places where people can only labor. It's just that we have become sort of labor averse. And to see that a lot of times choosing the more labor rich version of something can meet more of the needs of the people around you. So, so talking about movement in those, making sure that you're not only presenting movement for individual or personal well-being or for fitness sake, that it has a purpose beyond that. Those would be the pearl, the pearls of that book. And then of course that book's like a field guide. So you just go through and you see, depending on the environment, how do I do something at home? How do I do something at school? How do I do something for celebrations? How do I help them get dressed in the morning for more movement? All those, all those very practical things are covered in that text. Rethink your position. You've written so many books. How do you bring the practice of writing, which is so sedentary? How do you reconcile that with a life that is rich in movement? So I don't write like the way you just described. I, I will never sit in front of a computer waiting to write. You know, there've been a lot of studies on movement as a source of creativity. So maybe one of the, like I, I, I walk and work out what I'm going to write while I'm out, while I'm camping, while I'm gardening, while I'm walking to the grocery store. Like I use that space to formulate 
the thing that I'm doing. Now, the difference is I am writing nonfiction. I like to say, I, I have no idea how people do fiction and actually have to like create something. I am able to generate my concepts and ideas and word choices on the move. And I come in to put them out when I'm ready. Like I don't keep a writer's schedule of like, make sure you write for the first 30. Like I don't do that because for those reasons, I would just be sitting around all the time waiting for something to happen. And so I don't have that extra time. I just move around, do chores, do whatever, and then write when I'm ready. And then I use a flexible writing space. So I will be stretching and moving. I might be sitting on the floor doing what looks like to other people, uh, yoga poses or stretches. But meanwhile, I'm just banging out words on my computer. I will stand up and be shifting my weight and rolling out my feet. And while my hands and my eyes might be on the computer screen, the rest of my body is not still. And that's how I do it. Do you find that it takes discipline in order to implement all these elements of nutritious movement into your life? Hmm, that's a good question. No one's ever asked me that question before. I do um, know would be, I mean, maybe. (laughs) I think it goes like this. If you are not going to modify your environment, you are going to have to use discipline and willpower. Two things that we have to sort of manufacture now that we spend our time in spaces that don't meet our needs. Like, right, the bulk of what's going on in the world right now is meeting our wants and not meeting our needs. And that's the, that's the space that we're living. That's the time that we are living in is you can have whatever you want whenever you want it. And if you were to put a child, you know, an eight-year-old in a place that had every single thing that they were sort of set up to crave and anything else that they needed in this environment, they had to go work for it'd be very hard to make that switch. I mean, that's what we're trying to deal with all of the time is the fact that we live in an arcade, so to speak, an arcade candy shop. So modifying your environment is key because then you don't need willpower and you don't need discipline. Like, I don't think of myself necessarily as an ascetic, you know, like I I don't, that's not the, the point here. The point is like, I've named the things that I want. I've chosen the things that I want. And then I modify my environment to make getting those things occur more naturally without that whole process of willpower, shaming myself from one choice over the other choice. Like, I don't do that. So so I think if you can modify your environment and make some changes, you, you, have, to, you have to do that initial inertia override which is what we think of as discipline. You have, to, you have to get inertia going in your direction. You have to do that initial work. Once you do it, the momentum can take over. So yes, at the beginning, no for the long game. That's great. That's really great to hear. Now, Katie Bowman, you're the author of Rethink Your Position. Could you tell our listeners about how to find your book and how to learn more about you? You can find me and more information on Nutritious Movement dot com and same thing on social just nutritious movement and everything that you would want will be launched from that platform katie's new book rethink your position will be available at all the places you get books on may 11th it's a much needed guide to how our bodies move why we need to move and the intentional steps anyone can take to feel move and think better one part at a time pre-sales start may 1st so get yours then you can also listen to katie on her podcast move your dna 
Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.